Hey, before we start the show, I'd like to give a shout out to a very special sponsor of the Code Story podcast, and that's Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is one of the highest rated coding schools in the country, employing experts who are passionate about sharing their craft and empowering the next wave of programmers. Through their bootcamp, they accelerate education by focusing on modern skills to align their students with the needs of the tech industry. They offer a variety of courses from web development to UX design to iOS development, and their hands-on approach enables students to launch their careers or build their startups and ultimately to achieve their goals. I can personally vouch for the quality developers they produce, having hired six graduates from their Dallas campus. Not only does Dev Mountain teach the practical skills needed to build software, they give their students a foundation to amplify the necessary creative thinking, problem solving, and project focused skills required for tech professionals today. You can find out more information about their programs and how to sign up at devmountain.com. That's D E V Mountain.com. We're actually building the same technology in the same city and literally across the street from each other. And I figured it was, you know, maybe best for me to, to, to step aside and, and take a break. I mean, that I think lasted for like two days. And so I started spending some time kind of diving into where the industry was with uh, text analysis and, and machine learning and NLP. I'm Andy Abbott. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Heretic. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Andy Abbott used his startup experience and a little bit of machine learning to streamline your contract review. All this and more on Code Story. Andy Abbott has been a tech enthusiast for a long time, doing things that tech enthusiasts do. He built a BBS network so his friends could play games together. He created websites on GeoCities. And he even spent spring break on the beach, learning PHP. Post-graduating from Purdue, he spent many years gaining a diverse set of professional experiences, from software development to consulting, to domain squatting, to SEO, to grocery shopping. After selling the company he co-founded called Booked Out, he felt the pains of the contract review and diligence process. From that experience, he set off to build Heretic to enable the streamlining of contract review at scale. You've walked a lot of different roads and you've done a lot of really cool stuff, but tell me about how you got started with Heretic. I, I started a company um, or actually joined uh, three other guys back in 2012, 2013. I was really reached a point in my career especially kind of with my vibe and interest that I've always had from being an entrepreneur, but yet I've always kind of done it on the side. And so at one point I basically kind of was just, you know, I can't continue to work at a nine to five or corporate gig for a large company. I basically just have to cut ties and, and take the risk. And so I, I, I got to that point and 
just started my own consulting just to kind of figure out, give me some time to figure out what I wanted to do. So I was just kind of taking side gigs from a consulting standpoint to pay the bills. And one of the first gigs I found was this experiential staffing company that they wanted me to kind of help them fix some stuff with their database of, of talent. They were running a experiential marketing staffing company, which are for people that don't know experiential marketing. It's if you go to like a, an NFL game or any sporting events um, or any large kind of event in general, a concert, whatever, and you see these brands that have a present there that they're either getting you to sign up for free trials or they're you know showing off their new products or handing out t-shirts a lot of the, those staff um, that work those events are not um, employed by the brand directly. They're typically contractors. So if I want to staff those events, like I don't have people all over the place. So I basically, and don't have like kind of the capacity to even figure out how to hire people in every you know NFL city. So what they end up doing is obviously they'll hire some kind of event promotion company to create the experience, but along the line, they basically have to find a staffing company to source the individual people. And that's kind of what these guys were running. The four of us basically came up with this idea of creating a mobile tech platform that would allow these individual contractors to basically log into this mobile app. It would allow the brand or the event company to basically source talent through a, um, an admin portal from their desks at their office. Um, so it's kind of like the gig economy for experiential marketing. And so we, we you know, spent a, a year developing the tech for that, launched the company called Booked Out, and it kind of just took off. As, as word of mouth and these brand ambassadors were loving the experience, one thing that happened at, in Chicago, there was another company called ShiftGig that was doing almost the same thing, but they were focusing more on kind of the service industry. They just happened to be across the street and our investors and their investors were on some boards together and realized that, hey, we're actually building the same technology in the same city and literally across the street from each other. And so they basically acquired us. They were a little bit larger, but through that process, that acquisition, I was having to, to step away from my day to day to deal with just general M&A kind of due diligence. Since I was the, the tech owner, any technical kind of review, architecture review, security audit type questionnaires or documents that had to be produced. So I really quickly learned kind of what it takes and, and what was working and what wasn't working and diligence and, and especially around M&A. So once the acquisition went through, I uh, was not really gonna continue um, post-acquisition. It was, I was just a little bit, I think, burnt out. And I figured it was, you know, maybe best for me to, to, to step aside and, and take a break. I mean, that I think lasted for like two days and then kept going back to like, okay, what am I gonna do next? What do I really wanna do? Like, what's a problem that I can start looking at? And one of my colleagues at Booked Out used to work at this legal uh, software company in Chicago. It, at the time it was called Kcura. We were pretty friendly with them. They were a big uh, Microsoft.net shop. So I actually knew their CEO and some of their, their technology leadership people as well. After this acquisition or right before the acquisition closed, they came up to us and kind of asked us, hey, what are you guys doing next? And seeded this idea of like, 
you know, their platform was focused on e-discovery and litigation, but a lot of their clients were looking at use cases in corporate and transactional law. This idea kind of kept coming back is, okay, you know, it was such a pain to deal with due diligence and M&A for our acquisition. We are a small company too. We were only 30, I think 35 employees at the time. The entire time we were, this conversation was going on, none of our leadership team was being able to focus on their day-to-day. So it basically just the amount of work that was needed to find all this information just consumed your life. I, I knew that there was some opportunity there if we're looking at large amounts of information, so you know thousands and thousands of, of corporate contracts that are very lengthy, um, there might be a way to, to look at that information at scale and see if we can't organize it better, uh, see if we can't you know, extract information more efficiently, and, and in some aspects automate the discovery that's required during diligence. And, and so I started spending some time kind of diving into where the industry was from kind of dealing with this problem with uh, text analysis and, and machine learning and NLP. And after, you know, some, a couple months of research, realized that it was something I think that we could a- approach and it was something that was possible to improve. We started um, to work on that and was just kind of diving into doing a lot of market research and customer interviews or potential customer interviews and seeing kind of the scale of this problem and how, where exactly we wanted to, to enter the market. Was it something that we're looking at just corporate contracts? Are we looking at more just the drafting of corporate contracts? Is the, is the problem really the complexity of of having to create a a legal document one at a time, or is it having to deal with the redlining of those agreements, or is it having to deal with the execution or the organization post-execution? So there's all these different things that that people were struggling with basically just from the, the the amount of text and complexity of the text. But what we did realize was there was a lot of people looking at this problem, a lot. And we weren't sure if, you know, we could enter the market maybe a year or two or three years after some of these startups that were already working on this. So where could we be efficient and how could we leverage kind of our network and experience to to be successful and so we ended up landing was was looking at the review of of corporate contracts but the review at scale we uh we had access to to this company here in chicago called kcura which creates um an application called relativity they've since rebranded to relativity is their is their company name now like the, the best way to describe them is they're the sales force for a law firm Basically, every, every law firm in the world has relativity. And they, any large e-commerce or litigation case basically uses their product. So anyway, they, this, this company, Relativity, is here in Chicago. We're very well connected with them. And so it gave us an opportunity to kind of like, okay, could we leverage them as a platform? And they hadn't done a platform play yet, but they were definitely interested. And so we kind of got into discussions with them and said, hey, we'd like to build on top of your product today, open it up. Because right now it was focused on e-discovery and litigation only. 
and the their product is extremely expensive. I mean, when they own 96% of the market, they kind of can set their own price. And so there is kind of, you know, I think a monopoly there, but it's very effective and no one's even come close to, to offer kind of the same, the equivalent functionality. If you think about like trying to review 100,000 emails, like how long would that take, you know, you as an individual or your a team of lawyers to actually look through them? Could take weeks or months and if they can actually do it in, in a matter of you know 10 minutes or an hour and say nope these are all duplicates um you, there's nothing to worry about with confidence but anyway so they, their their product's very expensive but so half of the um the firm is only able to leverage this very expensive technology product so if we could actually create an offering on top of relativity and open up that product within for the rest of the firm could be a lucrative thing for both the firm and for us, because now they're, they're able to share kind of that technology spend across the entire firm. We're able to kind of enter our market on a, a software product that already exists, um, is already deployed within that firm. And the legal industry is not, I would say, a tech forward kind of industry. So to have kind of the ability to, to not worry about having to sell a new software into a firm was something that we really thought was attractive. Right, right. Let's dive into that. So what, what were the early tech decisions you had to make and how did you go about building that team? My background's kind of, it's very heavy Microsoft. I don't think it's really heavy Microsoft for any reason other than that's kind of like where I think all the, the marbles, marbles fell or, or whatever. Um, but I've been working on Azure, Microsoft Azure, since really it came out, when I was at that grocery software company, Amazon had been, they've had a, they had a, had a cloud offering for, I don't know, a year or so. But we were a software company that was, I mean, it was selling to, to grocery doors and Amazon was a huge competitor. And they were just starting to offer grocery products within their, their website. And so our executive team said, you can build on whatever, you know, cloud platform you want, as long as it's not Amazon, you know, what else is there? Uh, luckily at Microsoft had just, I think, announced Azure. So I started really early on Azure and kind of have been there for ever since. And when I was at building out the, the technology for Booked Out, we built a very heavy cloud architecture um, so that we could scale to, you know, large, kind of these large uh, on-demand events um, with you know immense amounts of talent and then shut it off. And so cloud was a key to, to, to that um, architecture. And so when we got into Heretic, we were looking to do the same thing. We figured, okay, if, if I have a deal that's coming up, I wanna be able to spin up this cloud architecture, run this these very heavy kind of NLP processes, processes against kind of these large documents in these large data sets and then turn it off. And so scaling was very important. And so we started kind of like working on this and, and building out some, some initial MVP kind of architecture, but all while we were doing, still doing a lot of customer interviews. And so we had this one customer that was really interested in kind of being a beta customer for us, but they require that we would go through a security audit and we're like okay and so we started doing that and then we're like wait we're gonna have to do this with every single firm and knowing that these law firms are very you know new to the cloud 
they're not really gonna be looking at it from, okay, does this make me more secure or not? They're gonna be looking at it more from, does this check the box that I can give to my clients saying that we you know, are compliant with every single security kind of compliance offering that exists. And so we were basically gonna realize that we we're gonna be wasting a lot of capital to go through these security audits. It wasn't maybe the best way to be spending our, our capital. And then the other side that we came across was talking with a couple of additional customers is they actually didn't even have the ability to connect to the cloud. They were working on completely shut off networks for their clients. Because if you think about these large M&A deals and what documents are involved there, uh, I mean, we're talking, you know, Facebook, like acquiring, you know, Oculus or, or I guess T-Mobile and Sprint is the big one going on right now. The, the documents that are getting reviewed are the most important documents for those two corporations. It's extremely sensitive information. It's it's a type of information that, you know, governments would, would be interested in. And so a lot of these networks where this these documents reside are not connected to the internet and it don't have the ability to connect to the internet. So that really put a problem in develop to deploy a cloud architecture. And then we looked at, okay, well, what we could do is maybe like a, you know, a private cloud or some kind of, Microsoft had some offerings that they were working on for that, but they were like, oh man, this is just creating more friction that we're gonna have to deal with for each individual client to tell them that they have to spin up their own kind of private cloud offering or figure out how to open up a, you know, some firewall or, or connect to the internet. It just, or deploy some kind of, infrastructure into their existing data center um, where we have to kind of build servers for them and such. It was just getting really messy very quick. We quickly decided we needed to pivot. We couldn't deploy or create really a cloud offering. We had to deploy something that was, you know, kind of in the legacy on-prem model. So we we're deploying actual software that the, the our, our clients would install. And so that took, um, we had kind of an MVP at the time. So we had to kind of pull back on that and, and basically kind of rebuild portions of it so that it would uh, uh, work on, in an on-prem way. And so that took, a, you know, I think a couple sprints to kind of dive in and, and re-architect everything. But we, we focused on it and we got it done. And then we had kind of what is today still our on-prem offering. It's not deployable. I mean, we have continuous integration, but it's continuous integration to our release kind of site to where a customer has to, to download, you know, the current install and then load into their system and install it. There's a lot of interesting hurdles that you have to kind of remember what existed kind of, you know, 10 years ago when you're building software that way. So is it kind of half and half on-prem versus cloud-based or is it primarily just on-prem? We are getting, I'd say, probably half and half now, maybe 60-40, 60 on-prem still. And the reason is because Relativity's, they have a new cloud offering product and they're pushing a lot of their clients to, to move to that. And then we're also kind of pulling back on architecture kind of patterns that we are using and, and moving into more of a container aspect. So it doesn't necessarily matter if we're deployed you know, whether it's in a customer kind of on-premise environment or if it's in a cloud offering in Azure or, or Amazon or even Google. So y'all are built pretty closely linked to Relativity. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So we basically, and it's, it is actually kind of, I think, one of our very unique positions within 
our industry and against our competitors is we're the only kind of a, a analysis kind of application that can run within relativity's environment. And what we what we do see is a lot of our competitors, you know, we do have customers that actually use them because they were the only op option at the time. They'll run kind of their documents through their analysis, but then take the results and have to import them into relativity because that's where they actually do their document review. And whereas us, you're basically never leaving relativity. So it's everything's done in house. So Relativity's plugged in and you're building on top of their platform. So does your product progression and your roadmap pretty closely link to what they're doing or is it separate? Yeah, so it's actually, I would say pretty separate. Um, there's, there's definitely some things that we do rely on them, but if anything, I think we're actually pushing them forward in, in a lot of aspects. So there's three of us that co-founded Heretic and two of them used to work at Relativity. So they know a lot of the decision makers there. They know a lot of the technology and engineers there. And so we knew from the get-go how kind of everything ran within Relativity, both on the business side, but also on the technical side under the hood. And so that gave us the ability to kind of focus on areas within their architecture that we could leverage. And they kind of have this core system to where they basically have, I'd say like a dumb it down, basically a job queue. And then they basically have workers that pick up work. And so we've built our system around kind of that concept. So, and we leverage kind of some fundamental kind of just job queuing and workers, but then we kind of adapt it to work within relativity. Um, and so we can schedule kind of large amounts of work to be done across many, many workers which uh, a client can scale up or down depending on the, the, the need uh, of their case. Where one other thing that we do is where we kind of set ourselves apart is Relativity definitely was built for e-discovery uh, use cases. And so there's a lot of very specific, I think, functionality and features within their product to, to, to focus on that, you know, what, what's needed in e-discovery litigation. And we knew that from our standpoint our clients for their use cases are going to be slightly different they're not looking at individual emails or individual chat messages or text messages they're looking at large you know bodies of text and so we couldn't have a a document viewer function in the same way as what relativity's current document viewer functions and so we that's one aspect where i think we built a, a complete different and new product uh, separate from Relativity is our document viewer. It's still housed within the Relativity kind of e ecosystem for security and, and data access, but the viewer itself is, is really a standalone product. And so it allows us to kind of really ramp up and scale feature development with not, without having to kind of step on any toes or, or you know, be hindered by any roadmaps within kind of the Relativity kind of uh, front end team. Touch on how, how you built your team. How did you go hire the right people? So I was fortunate enough um, to have two of my co-founders come from Relativity, um, and one of them being technical. David, my, my technical uh, co-founder, was really one of my lead or expert kind of engineers at Booked Out. So when he was, uh, after the acquisition, and when he decided that he wasn't you know, gonna continue on with them, he came on board with Heretic, it, it really allowed us to, to ramp up from a tech standpoint right away. And it also kind of opened up the ecosystem to 
the relativity, I think, technical experts. And one of the aspects that we've done there is um, leverage one of their their dev vendors that they use through some through our networks there. And so we, from an engineering standpoint, I don't want to say it's like outsourcing for some of this aspect because we're basically tapping into very experienced relativity developers. And so we use them, I think, more as an augmentation as really to kind of like outsource because it's not cheap labor or anything like that. They're very talented and, and actually very expensive engineers. There's very few of them. They're either working at relativity or they don't exist. Um, and so we basically, we can't hire the relativity engineers. Um, so we just, we started looking at the dev partner to, to really focus on relativity specific development. Uh, and then from there, between myself and my co-founder, we knew that we started we would have to build out some additional horsepower. Um, so we were lucky enough to find a, a great uh, mid-level developer here in Chicago. He was a a different startup, and a friend of mine who's a recruiter basically had mentioned that the startup was looking to shut down, and that Sam was going to be on the market here soon. And so we quickly reached out to him. Uh, met with him and loved him from the start and he's been a great uh, success to our company both from uh, a technical aspect but from also a, cu a cultural aspect uh, got some data science help we've uh, uh, and just gradually ramped up other kind of team members as the need came about so initially it was really focused on building the product and so our, our team was all technical and then as we started rolling out some customers during our beta, we, we had to get some help to, to my other co-founder, Charlie. So we, we, we hired some biz, business development, uh, marketing, and then support, customer success, and then additional salespeople. So we've kind of been growing slowly based off of just whatever the business need is, but being very sure-footed before we would pull the trigger. So from, from a tech standpoint, what's a mistake that you made and how did your team respond to it? I, I think, I mean, one of the mistakes was really making some assumptions from uh, customers. And I think I talked a little bit to it uh, when we just, you know, started building a cloud architecture just because that's how you develop, but not really understanding the true realities of our, our client's environment that cloud just isn't possible. Or if it is, it's going to be a very, very slow rollout. And so I think that that was probably one of our largest initial mistakes. One of the other mistakes I think is interesting, though, is with our, our, our first go at building a document viewer, we really understood the problem. We really understood the customer. We spent a lot of time interviewing customers and kind of really understanding their needs and then dove into building it and architecting it. So we had, I, we probably went, I don't know if it was two months or something, just focus heads down on, on building the stock viewer. And then it came, you know, we're probably, I don't know, a sprint or two away from, from releasing it. And as we got into it and as we started doing some testing and such, we realized like, okay, it works, but it's, it's how robust is this? How module is it? How are we going to be able to improve on it as, as customers needs grow and, and we understand and want to bring in more problems to solve? Like, is this really going to work? And the more we thought about it, we realized that we were just kind of really coming up to a wall. You know, it would, it works for now, but it's not something we're happy with and it's not something that I think is going to work forever. And so we kind of just tore it apart, kind of threw it away. 
one thing that was interesting is is Sam. He's our engineer that very heavy on front end and excellent at front end. And this was kind of his baby, I would say. And he went on vacation for I think it was a week and a half. It was like his first vacation that he had had um, in a while. So he was like really excited about it. And then while he was gone is when we made this decision. And then my my, my co-founder and I are like, oh my God, Sam's going to kill us. But we also said, you know what? He's going to be very, very happy because he knows it's the right decision. He's probably been wanting to tell us that we need to do this, but he probably didn't know how to say it. And so we kind of just like, yeah, we threw it away and started over. We're so happy that we did because we going through kind of two to three months of development and figuring out how to do stuff, we were able to kind of rebuild the entire thing from scratch in in less than, I think it was about two and a half, three weeks. Yeah, we knew exactly what we needed to do. And we, we really built a strong foundation and it's really helped in the over the last year about being able to add additional functionality to it and deal with scale that we didn't even expect at the time. Because like when we were kind of looking at these corporate contracts, we were on average, our, I think our test set was maybe 10 to 20 page contracts with large documents in the orders of maybe 100 to 150 pages. But now we're seeing some of some agreements that are over a thousand to 1500 pages and there's no way that our initial viewer would have been able to handle that but now with this re-architected system that we built it's very scalable the 2000 pages isn't a problem at all and there's i mean if anything it's probably some other stuff that we're doing um that we need to refactor so it's like i I guess the the lesson learned there is it's never too late to throw your code away and start over so what does the future look like for Heretic and for the product, for the team, for, for the company? It's actually scale, um, I think, is, is the best way I would say it. Because we've kind of, I don't want to say pivoted, but we're kind of in the middle of pivoting from a target kind of use case. So initially when we got into Heretic, it was really focused on M&A. We were dealing kind of with these large mergers and trying to go after those. But what has turned out is the true opportunity is with regulatory compliance. So the the Brexits, the GDPR, the California GDPR, the accounting industry, and some new regulations around that. Um, there's this uh, banking bank rate change coming up in in a year um, year and a half called LIBOR, where every financial document that exists is basically going to have to be updated. And so we're talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars at stake with these agreements. And so the scale of an M&A deal, you know, where you're at, you know, tens of thousands to maybe a hundred thousand agreements isn't anywhere the scale at having to review every single financial agreement uh, in the world or having to, to review every single vendor agreement that exists because of data security with GDPR and data privacy or just trying to figure out what to do when Brexit hits. And so the scale there is just drastically different. And so we're kind of, um, and we're seeing this from our clients. And and so we're kind of preparing for that, a lot of use cases and really making sure our product can uh, tackle them, testing with our clients and, and performing some of these large scale review projects already. And so I think that's kind of where we're seeing this. And we're also seeing because of the scale, everyone's realizing that, okay, cloud has to happen. 
we can't do this. We just don't have the physical infrastructure in our data centers. We can no longer, you know, ensure that our our data centers are secure. And so we're seeing a lot of our clients actually start to to migrate to the cloud. So I think over the course of the next probably 12 to 24 months, um, for sure, we'll be probably the 80 percent cloud deployed, and then 20 percent maybe still on prem for some smaller aspect. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Probably focus on dealing with long sales cycles and long, probably the friction of change, I think, is always difficult. And, and truly understanding the realities of a laggard industry and what it's going to take to get people to buy into a new technology or a new product or a new way of doing things. And we've been pretty cognizant of all of that. It's just we underestimated even realizing it was a problem, still underestimating how big of a problem it was going to be. And I think that's kind of probably one thing I would change is, is focusing on how we could attack and, and approach customers differently to, um, if possible, shorten kind of their ramp up or, or sales cycles. It's, and even one of the things we're also on kind of realizing is we're, we're really introducing a new um, offering to a lot of our clients because they're, they're not used to being able to go after large scale review projects just because it was cost prohibitive. For them to, um, actually one of our largest competitors has nothing to do with an actual other company. It's actually competing against the fines that these regulatory laws are uh, incurring on customers. So for example, like for GDPR, if, if um, uh, say Germany is going to, or the EU is going to, to fine a corporation $10 million for not complying with GDPR, but it's going to cost the corporation $30 million to actually review all documents to, to, to get into compliance. They're just going to pay the fine. You know, they're going to throw their hands up. And that's what we're actually seeing is, is we're not necessarily competing against another technology company. We're just basically competing against a fine that the, the company is willing to pay. What advice would you give someone just starting out, you know, on the road of being startup CTO, a tech founder, or even just a, someone tinkering on a side project that you've done many of, what advice would you give them? I think the biggest thing is to really focus on something that you're passionate about and also do your research. Cause I think a lot of, especially from a tech standpoint, what I've seen just kind of being part of the startup kind of environment here in Chicago, Technical co-founders will a lot of times, or technical founders will a lot of times basically just start to solve the problem right away as opposed to really understanding what the problem is and whether it truly is a problem for a client. Are they willing to pay for it? And so they'll work you know, six, six to 12 months on building some cool website or some cool you know, mobile app and then they're ready to launch it and they're like, oh, well, no one's really willing to pay for this. Or, you know, oh, I didn't really create the best product and my customers aren't happy because I wasn't actually asking them questions as I was going. And so I think that's kind of one of the key aspects is really kind of spend some time up front. And the more time you can spend up front is to, to do your research, I think the better off you'll be. Um, and that was one of the things that we really focused on at Heretic was we didn't actually write any code I think on our heritage product for, it was almost six months. We were really focused on researching 
you know, the data science and AI kind of industry in a, in a spot to where this makes sense. We're focused on researching our customer base, you know, our competitive kind of matrix and where, you know, an entry point into this problem exists for us. And then kind of what we could do from a, a local ecosystem and leveraging kind of our network and such to, to build a team and build kind of uh, partners and, and even investors as well. Um, so collectively, that was, you know, a lot of time up front that we spent, but I think it really kind of um, positioned us in a great uh, way to, to be where we're at today. Landy, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the, the story of Heretic. Thank you, Noah, for having me, and it was a pleasure speaking. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Co-produced and edited by George Macharco. Special thanks to Deanna Chapman and Stephanie Campisi for their promotional support. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Breaker, or the podcasting app of your choice. Make sure to check us out at CodeStory.co or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.